Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fuboli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Sam Broverman, a longtime instructor in actuarial science at University of Toronto, who will be retiring next year after 45 years of teaching future actuaries. So Sam, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, let's start off with a little bit of background for those who don't know you. Can you let everyone know how you got started at University of Toronto and how you became associated with the actuarial profession? Well, I'm from Winnipeg originally, and I went to University of Manitoba, which has an actuarial program, one of the oldest in the country, second only at the University of Toronto. And I was interested in mathematics. And as an undergrad, I did a, a degree in mathematics, but I had one of my older brother's was studying actuarial math at University of Manitoba. And he suggested to me that I take a few actuarial courses and take a few exams. And that would lead to good opportunities for, for summer internships. And I followed his advice and he was right. And so I started to develop a bit of a background in actuarial science, actuarial math is what we called it at the time, early on as an undergraduate. And I continued on in Manitoba to do a master's and a PhD in a somewhat theoretical area of math, point set and set theoretic topology, not much related to actuarial science, but I continued to take actuarial exams. And when I graduated PhD, I got a postdoctoral fellowship at University of Toronto. And that's when I came here in 1976. While I was here, one of the things that postdoctoral fellows do is um, their cheap labor to teach some courses. And there was a need in the program here for actuarial teaching, and I had the right background. So I started to teach some undergraduate courses in actuarial math at U of T. And I did that for a couple of years while I was a postdoc, and then came time to get a full-time position. I did want to stay in the academic world, but I did speak actually to some local Toronto firms, a couple of consulting companies, and I had some offers in my back pocket to, to actually work in the profession, non-academic as a practitioner, but my heart was still in favor of a, an academic career, and there were many more good opportunities on the actuarial academic side than there were in the particular theoretical math field that I had studied, and so I took a job at University of Texas, my first regular faculty position, and it was University of Texas at Austin. Uh, actuarial program, and I was there for a few years. And then one of my mentors at University of Toronto, Don Bailey, retired. Really, he had written a very popular compound interest book way back in the 60s that was used for many years here. He retired, his vacancy left the position, and I guess they didn't think hard enough about it, and they decided to ask me back. And I've been here since, as a full-time faculty member, since 1980. And it was a pretty seamless transition from one area of math, actuarial math. I've enjoyed it all along, and I kind of ran the program for a number of years. I was associate chair for many years, and our associate chair is on sabbatical this year. That's been doing it for the last few years, so they pulled me back in for one last kick at the can before I retire. So it's a job that I know fairly well, so I'm able to handle it without too much effort. That's how I got here, more or less. Okay, very good. Now, as we mentioned at the top, you've been there or involved with teaching actuarial science for for almost half a century. What are some of the, sorry to put it that way, but uh, what are some of the the more noteworthy changes you've seen in actuarial education over those years? One thing that stands out of my mind is uh, very early on, it was probably in the mid 70s, I, I happened to be on a flight with the then, I think he was head of the education committee. And I was, I was asking him, why aren't actuarial students allowed to use calculators on, on the exams? And he, he felt that it was important that young actuaries know the infinite series representation for e to the x and to uh, use approximations of that type. You know, that mindset slowly changed. Technology has 
slowly made its way into to actuarial practice. Now, more so, I think the actuarial profession is more receptive <laughs> to technological changes now than it than it once was. But that you know that that was one thing. But I, I would say that probably the the biggest change is in the recognition of university education. I remember that uh, early on there was um, actuarial membership. There was really tremendous opposition to recognizing university education uh, in lieu of taking exams. And that steadfast opposition remained for a long time until the Canadian Institute, a leader in North America, started to follow, I guess, the UK lead and some other countries and uh, created the university accreditation program, which University of Toronto has been part of right from the start. And I'm glad that the professional body recognizes that the academic side has something to add when it comes to educating students as opposed to students uh, studying on their own in their basement. That's been a major change, the acceptance of university credit. And of course, as I said, going with the flow as technology has uh, evolved now. Societies incorporate a lot more statistics. Well, it's, you know, casually it always did, but d- data science has become more and more important part of actuarial training and, and practice, I think. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And another thing that I think has changed a lot over the years is the expectations of actuarial graduates in terms of skills and competencies. How have you seen this evolve over time? What I perceive was from early on is that there has been a certain mystique and an aura in the professional world regarding the technical expertise of actuaries. An actuary was somebody who was highly trained mathematically and, and technically in general. And that expectation has always been there. One thing that had been missing from my point of view in the formal actuarial training was more soft skills, being able to make presentations, both written and oral and so on. And and again, that slowly was recognized. I remember I was, oh, this was maybe 20 years ago. I was part of a a committee with the Society of Actuaries. There was something called Exam 7, which was actually an in-person seminar in which students would analyze a data set and write a report and and so on. And so that, that was sort of moving toward developing that skill. And, and now in, in, in the last 10 or 15 years at U of T, and I, I think some other actuarial programs, we have specific courses that taught by practitioners that help students with various soft skills and, um, and, and also helping them to get ready for the business. The, the mathematical training is important, but it, it, it doesn't give the students a good sense of, of the business world and the you know, the, the practice that, that they will be entering. And so we've developed a number of courses, mostly taught by practitioners, which, which have been really helpful in, in bridging that gap and getting students ready in that way. Okay, well, we're going to step away from actuarial topics for a few moments. For those who don't know, you do have a sideline hobby as a jazz musician. So can you ah. tell us a bit about that and how you got into it and, and how you're, yeah. you're spending your time with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I Well, if ever since I was quite young, along with a an interest, a, a love for mathematics, I also had the same for music. And I've actually worked as a professional singer, essentially since I was a teenager in Winnipeg. I, while I was a graduate student, I was on a couple of nationally televised shows in which I was a part of a small chorus. Some of your listeners may remember, this is long gone now, but there was a show called Hymn Sing on Sunday afternoons. It was quite popular at its peak. It was viewed by two to three million people a week. And it was for a while until it was overtaken by Hockey Night in Canada. It was the longest running nationally televised show. And as a small chorus, nationally televised, it actually paid quite well. And it helped pay my way through, partly through graduate school. I always had this 
I wouldn't call it a struggle because I love both, but you know, to make time, you know, if you, if you want to do something in a, in a, in a really meaningful and serious and professional way, it it requires um, dedication and time and effort and to split that between studying for a PhD in math and trying to maintain a bit of a professional career as a musician, there's sometimes a bit of a struggle and, and time conflicts and so on. And being in the artistic community, having a, a foot in that community, I knew what a struggle it was for so many professional artists to, to make a living. And uh, I decided I would continue my passion for music, but I would devote more career-wise to mathematics and an academic career. And I have managed to maintain that kind of a balance. I've been a member of the Toronto Mendelssohn Choir. That's a large chorus that performs with the Toronto Symphony when when we're not locked down and Roy Thompson Hall isn't shut. But And I've been with the choir for, this is my 40th year. We've been nominated for a Grammy. We've won a Juno. And so I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. Me and, you know, like 150 of my best friends <laughs> up on stage accepting a Juno. But um, so I've managed to, to maintain that. And, and in the last 10 years, as you know, some of the demands of the academic career have, have eased a bit, I, I got back into solo singing a bit more. And I released a couple of albums in the last 10 years. First one was about 10 years ago. And I, you know, I have a, a love for the, the American songbook. Again, that might not be a household phrase for the listeners, but uh, everybody knows the song Moon River. Most everybody knows the song Moon River from the Academy Award winning song from 1962 from Breakfast at Tiffany's by Johnny Mercer. I'm a big fan of his. And so he's one of the big writers. But of course, you know, George and Ira Gershwin and Harold Arlen and Cole Porter, you know, those are just a few of the uh, songwriters of the American songbook, which an era which ran from the early 1900s to the mid 70s. That was the genre that I mostly like to sing, and I recorded some albums on that. But I also do like to write a bit, and I've written some math parodies. And actually, there was an actuarial research conference that we hosted in 2015 at University of Toronto, and it actually celebrated the 135th anniversary of the actuarial program at U of T. And the Canadian Institute was kind enough to present the program with a lovely plaque, which hangs on the wall. And when people can come back to school, they'll, they'll see it again, commemorating that 135th anniversary. But one of the things I did was I recorded an album of, uh, of math parody songs, math and actuarial parody songs. And that was one of the bits of swag, a CD that was given to, to the people who attended the conference. So that was, that was kind of fun. Do you have an actual Juno award sitting on your Yeah. Method? So, so because the choir consists of about hundred people, they, they didn't give us all a Juno award, okay. but I was told, in fact, many people who win Junos don't actually get the physical property. If it's a bigger group, they actually have to buy it if they want to put it on their shelf. So, so, you know, if, uh, you know, if I can scrape, scrape up uh, $500, if your listeners want to, uh, uh, set up a Sam Roverman Juno uh, Award Fund, and uh, you know, no, but I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's a nice thing to have and have on your mantle, but uh, and I can get one if I if I want, but I, I haven't decided that yet. But yes, the answer is yes. I actually have a Juno Award. Very good. Okay, I was going to close off by asking what three jazz albums everybody should own, but I don't know if anybody owns albums anymore. So maybe we'll say what are three jazz albums besides yours that everybody should have in their <laughs> Well, you know, people are still releasing albums of all types. Sometimes it's a concept that, you know, you have a bunch of songs to fit together. Although the traditional 12 song or so album is, you know, that's sort of disappearing. CDs are now out of date as well. And so everything's released digitally and you can release one song at a time. But I would say sometimes a particular concert 
would get recorded in an album. And, and so the three albums, one at the very top of my list, is an album from 1966, and I'm, of course, partial to singers. I'm a big fan of Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra. And Frank Sinatra recorded uh, with the Count Basie Orchestra in 1966, a concert live at the Sands. Mm-hmm. And it is one of the really best jazz albums of all time, in my opinion. Any ranking of people that are more knowledgeable than me would put it near the top of the list. So Sinatra Live at Sands from 1966. Another landmark album, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. It's uh, from 1959. And along with uh, Miles Davis, who was you know legendary trumpeter, he had some of the best players of the time working with him. John Coltrane is a, another very famous uh, yeah. saxophone player, Julian Adderley, Cannonball Adderley, as he's known, and Bill Evans, who is, you mm-hmm. know, renowned as perhaps one of the finest jazz pianists ever. Uh, so that's it's a fantastic album. And uh, an album from 1963, it's at the top of my list, is Night Train. And th- those are three fantastic albums. You, you know, you can listen to them over and over. They're not, they're better than background music for sure. It's interesting. I got my daughter turned on to Bill Evans when she was in university, and that is what she listens to now when she's studying. It is the perfect. Oh, his his Village Vanguard sessions are just inspirational. They're so good. Wonderful. So good. Okay, great. Well, this has been a great conversation, so thanks very much for uh, speaking to us today. Thank you very much for having me. I, you know, it's been fun talking to you, and uh, I'm, I'm used to seeing you come by to the U of T to uh, talk about the, the Canadian Institute and the, the relationship to the university programs and also in, in, in connection with the university accreditation program. It's nice to talk to you in a different context. Yeah, well, we'll be doing a virtual presentation at U of T in October, but I just certainly Yeah, I know we I'll be there, and we've been telling our students about that, so I hope you get, hope there's a good turnout. Okay, fantastic. Well, we now have several dozen episodes in our podcast series, so we certainly encourage you to subscribe, and you can do that through Spotify or Apple or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And if you like today's episode, we'd like you to leave a five-star rating or a comment, and we'd also like to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions or episode ideas, you can send them to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. And of course, we're always looking for content for our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have some ideas or perspectives that you would like to share, please reach out to us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia-ica.ca. And before we go today, let's have a listen to one of Sam's performances. Here's a composition of his entitled The Actuary Song. Until next time, I'm Chris Vivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk. An actuary is trained to be an expert in uncertainty who can find the probability of your life longevity. There is nothing that cheers an actuary like measuring mortality. Maybe that's why most folks think that we are as strange as strange can be. The people I meet have often said that studying math filled them with dread. But if they'd had a teacher who wasn't brain dead, they might be FSAs instead. Schmidt, Balducci, and Woolhouse, to name a few, are actuaries we look up to. And if you'd like to join the actuary, who's who invent a method like Gerbershoe? So many exams have tortured me From P right up to FAC For years I worried that I might be An SOA exam casualty US News, CNN and all the others agree Our job's the tops perennially 
Self-selection has joined us to an elite crew Though nobody knows what it is we really do So remember when your work sucks occasionally You're with the few and the proud You're an actuary